0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that.
1: This morning's reading is from Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery." Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, What, are you, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the repro- reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olives, groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, one percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, we have the privilege of hearing a message from Andrea Lucado. Andrea is a freelance writer based here in Austin. She is also the author of the 2017 book, English Lessons, The Crooked Path of Growing Toward Faith, and has contributed articles to publications such as The Washington Post, Fathom Magazine, and Christianity Today. She told me that she has jumped on almost every COVID bandwagon, hobby bandwagon, and she now spends her time on the weekends gardening and trying to make the perfect loaf of sourdough bread. Um, I am fortunate enough to have known Andrea since we were 11 years old, and we have been through a lot of years and milestones and seasons of life together. But through it all, Andrea has consistently been a friend I admire for her deep thinking, her adventurous spirit, her commitment to learning and growing, her brave vulnerability, and her grace-filled wisdom. God has used Andrea in so many ways to bless my life, and I know we will be blessed hearing from her today as she shares with us a message from Nehemiah 5. So welcome, Andrea.
0: Oh, that's really special. Katie and I have known each other a long time, so it's really an honor to be with you this morning. This is my second time to any sort of in-person church in like a year. So this is really pretty amazing, It's really a treat for me. Um, So I know you've been working through Nehemiah and going through kind of this theme of rebuilding, what it looks like to rebuild after a year like 2020. And um, so I wanna ask you a, a question, just kind of think about the last time you had to rebuild your life personally, kind of a personal season of rebuilding. When I think about that, I think about um, a time in 2014 when I was 28 years old, 27, 28, and I quit my corporate job to pursue uh, the job I have now that Katie was talking about to be a freelance writer. Only in 2014, I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, I also had been writing a book on the side that I wanted to finish within six months of quitting that job. And I think I bit off a little more than I could chew and underestimated just how big of a transition this was going to be for my life. Um, And I remember feeling a lot of anxiety, kind of a a couple of months into that. I remember feeling overwhelmed um, by anxiety like I never had before. Uh, I felt anxious all day, every day. I kind of wandered around in a fog. I felt a lot of pain in my neck, in my shoulders, I even went to the dentist to figure out what was going on with my jaw because I was grinding my teeth at night. And um, I think when we're going through seasons of transition like this, we're really vulnerable to our greatest weaknesses. And one of mine was being out of control. And I wasn't handling being out of control of my life very well. I went from having a steady paycheck to not knowing what I was going to make the next month. Um, I went from working in a big corporate office of 300 people to working alone in my living room. And this was before COVID, before everyone was working alone in their living rooms. And I think that caused kind of this fear of being out of control to lead to a lot of anxiety. There was relational stuff going on that was contributing to that. And during this time, I actually had lunch with a friend and I was sharing this with her. And And in the middle of of sharing kind of this anxiety with her, she looked at me and asked me a question that I thought was unrelated at the time and kind of random. But she said, Andrea, what are you doing for other people right now? And it kind of stopped me in my tracks and I thought, well, not much. I spend most of my day alone alone. In this loop of thoughts that's causing a lot of anxiety. And um, while I did have a volunteer position at my church with the youth group, I was not very engaged with that role at the time. And what her question helped me realize was that in my quest to rebuild my life, I made the mistake of just focusing on myself and forgetting about others. And this actually made the process of rebuilding really difficult. I think this is something that can happen during times of rebuilding. We focus on what we're trying to gain. We focus on ourselves and we forget this Christian call to care for and love the other. I experience this on a personal level, but this is true when it comes to times of rebuilding on a communal level, on a church level, and on a national level. The failure to care for others, to seek justice for others, especially when we're in the vulnerable state of rebuilding what has been broken, actually weakens us as individuals and as systems, whether those are political systems, communal systems, or church systems. And this is what we see play out in Nehemiah 5, the passage that Katie just read. Um, Up until this point in Nehemiah, the Israelites, we kind of see them working pretty well together. I really like chapter three that even lists all the names of all the people who are working on the wall, all the men, women, and their kids. Uh, But I think what we don't realize is that these men and women were making a great sacrifice to be able to build this wall. And this is what we're hearing about in this chapter, the things that they've given up in order to give everything to this wall. And in Nehemiah 5, this becomes really evident. People aren't just getting along and and working together anymore, but they're actually raising their concerns and expressing um, the real struggles of injustice they're experiencing just to get this wall made. And Nehemiah 5 opens with three groups of people bringing their concerns to him. The first group is verse 2, talked about in verse 2. It says, we are sons and daughters, are many Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. So this is the landless poor. Basically, the people who the men in the family were day laborers, and they couldn't do that work anymore because of the wall, so they were unable to provide for their families. In verse 3, we have a group that had to mortgage their lands and vineyards and houses that they may buy grain. So these are people who are forced to mortgage their property in order to survive. And normally, the men in these families would be able to make money to pay that loan during harvest time. But during harvest time, they're working on the wall, so they're not able to make that money. And then in verse 5, you have a really desperate group of people. These are people who borrowed money because they couldn't afford the taxes that the king had put on their heads. So they took out a loan to pay these taxes. They couldn't afford to pay the interest rates on that loan, which would be as high as 40 to 50%, which is what I read somewhere. And so to pay that, they had to sell their children into slavery. So this is a really desperate group of people. Um, And then they said it's not in our power to redeem them. They can't get their kids back because they can't afford to pay back this loan. So what we're seeing is that the vulnerable state of the community had allowed people who maybe had more money and had more power to take advantage of the vulnerable members of the community. So we're seeing the poor only getting poorer, which is a great injustice. And because of this, the task at hand, rebuilding the wall, was at risk. That entire work was being threatened by this injustice. In one commentary I read, it said, this issue of social injustice could have splintered the community and brought about the same consequences their enemies had failed to achieve. So, you know, Israel had just been in captivity. Their enemies were trying to weaken them by separating them. And now the Israelites are doing this to their own. They're weakening each other by committing injustices against each other and hurting their own. I'm not sure our country has seen this at play more than in the year 2020, how injustice can splinter our community. One of those injustices in the forefront of last year was that of racism And in the conversations I was listening to, and a part of specifically the church's complacency in that area, I remember the president of Christianity Today writing an article talking about how this long history we have really bled into, he said, the virus of racism infected our church, our constitution and laws, our attitudes and ideologies, and we have never fully defeated it. So it's not that this injustice didn't exist before, it's just that in our vulnerable state, in our country state, it was impossible to avoid. This state of weakness revealed other weaknesses in our nation, in our education system, in our childcare system, Um, the unequal weight put on working mothers to have to teach their kids at school and also work, and also the way that we have maybe devalued the work of essential workers who are all of a sudden getting us through all of this. So the vulnerability simply exposed what had been there all along. And this is what's happening in Israel. Looking back at their story, we see Nehemiah address this injustice in a really effective way. I was really impressed with him. Um, He's someone who has power and is using that power for good. So when Nehemiah heard about the injustice... He does several things, but I want to point out four of the things that he does. The first thing is in verse seven, it says, This is Nehemiah talking. I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers. So, the first thing, one of the first things Nehemiah does is he listens. He listens to the outcry of the community. And not only does he listen to these people, those three groups I talked about at the beginning, but he believes them. He doesn't say, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. He doesn't turn a blind eye, but he listens and he believes them. And this is what allows him to proceed with acting on the injustice immediately, kind of stopping it before it can get any worse. And in verse 7, The second thing he does, he says, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. I'm using the the New King James Version here. Your version probably says something different, but he names the sin for what it is, which is usury, which is basically charging those unfairly high interest rates. This was actually forbidden in Hebrew law. It was forbidden. You could do it to a foreigner, but you weren't allowed to do it to a fellow Israelite. So they're breaking um, Levitical law here. But I think it's really powerful that Nehemiah names what's happening. He says, this is the sin. This is what you're doing. And then in verses 10 to 11, the third thing he does, he says, please let us stop this usury, restore now to them even this day their land, vineyards, olive groves, their houses, a hundred of the money and the grain, the new wine, and the oil that you have charged them. So he tells the community leaders and the priests who were committing this act of usury to stop and also to rectify what they've done, to pay back the people what they have taken from them. And the fourth thing that Nehemiah does, this is later in the chapter, verses 14 to 16, is he takes ownership of his part So it says that he never ate from the food allotted to the governor, so the surplus of food he doesn't take advantage of, he doesn't take. Um, He doesn't take extra taxes from the people that governors in the past have taken, and he doesn't buy land. And neither do the people who worked for him. So that means they weren't taking advantage of their position to get some cheap land or acquire property. He's leaving that to be available to the people. So Nehemiah is solely focused on rebuilding the wall for God and his people and not for his own sake. If injustice was threatening to stop construction, seeking justice is what allowed it to continue, caring about the entire community and not taking advantage of the community's vulnerable. I think I've seen some of Nehemiah's tactics in the church in the last year in a really encouraging way. Uh, One example that comes to mind is uh, kind of a a personal example. This is actually a story story about my dad that he's um, allowing me to share. He's actually written about this for an upcoming book, but my dad is a pastor in San Antonio at a church called Oak Hills, where he's been for 33 years, my, basically my whole life. Um, and last summer, as there were riots and outcries from the black community specifically, my dad started to feel convicted about his silence in the area of racism. And because of this conviction, he heard about a meeting of black pastors in San Antonio who meet every week. And he started attending because he wanted to hear their stories, and he wanted to get to know them and to learn from them. And as he did, he formed relationships with them. And this led to co-leading a prayer meeting. I think this was late last fall in downtown San Antonio, outside the arena. It was kind of a a social distanced prayer gathering that he co-led with another pastor from that group. And in that prayer, he said he was convicted to use words he maybe hasn't in the past. Phrases like white supremacy, naming the sin of racism. And I think it was a difficult thing to do, but a really necessary thing to do. And because of... Of that, not just what he's doing, but because of, you know, just numerous kind of interpersonal relationships that are growing in San Antonio, especially among the pastoral community, they're starting to see real movement and rebuilding that which has been broken. um, And communities working together rather than apart. But before they could do that, they had to name the sin. They had to say it wasn't okay. They had to take ownership for their part all before they could really start rebuilding Um, I'll never forget my friend asking me that question during one of the darkest seasons of my life. What are you doing for other people? And to give a caveat here, that's not always the right question to ask someone when they're in the throes of anxiety or depression. I think doing things for other people can often lead us to those places of of anxiety. But that was the right question to ask me at the time. It inspired me to think about um, how I can't forget other people even if I'm in the midst of personally rebuilding my life. Um, And I feel like I've seen people do this really well in my community during COVID. I've seen people serving each other really well as we're all just kind of trying to make it through this time. And one of the best examples I've seen is actually kind of a virtual example, which is something we've all kind of turned to during this time, but I'm in a Facebook group called Buy Nothing. There are many of these Facebook groups across the city and the country, but the idea is you know, before you go out and buy that cinnamon that you need for a recipe, or before you go um, buy that tool from Home Depot, check in on this Facebook group with an ask, see if your neighbor might have an extra one or if you can borrow it. So the idea is to do what the group is called, which is buy nothing. But during COVID, this group has gotten really robust. There are a lot of members, people are all home, and people have more needs than ever before. And I've seen the community, you know, someone will post, oh, my entire family was hit by COVID, we're sick, we can't go to the grocery store, and people will just deliver groceries to them, deliver meals to them, they don't even know them. And one of the most touching things I've seen was a few weeks ago, someone posted, You know, I moved to Austin for my health, which is weak, which means I can't really be, you know, out and about, but I feel really isolated and I just need friends. And they posted, You know, if you want to be my friend, send me a friend friend request. We can have a social distance hangout. And I think I saw over 80 people respond to that post. It was a really beautiful thing. And to me, this is the spirit of Christ at work during this time. Christ came to serve and not be served. He was a king, not working for his own gain, but to serve those to seek and to save the lost. And if we're going to rebuild well, we have to keep caring for one another in the way Christ has cared for us, which was without ambition, with humility, and with kindness. So I want to leave you just with a couple of questions. First is, what work of rebuilding do you feel called to right now? I think a lot of us are in personal seasons of rebuilding after whatever uh, we lost last year or just kind of the emotional toll that's taken on all of us. But maybe you feel called to helping rebuild this church community as you look Forward and how to navigate the social distance world. Um, maybe you work at the Capitol or on a political level or for a big NGO and you're doing kind of serious work of rebuilding in the community. So whatever type of work you feel, you feel called to right now, my second question for you is this, how could you care for others in the midst of that work? Who might you be missing? Who could get lost in the fray or in the shuffle and how could you care for them as you work to rebuild? Uh, the The end of Nehemiah 5 is actually a prayer that Nehemiah gives to God. He says, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. So that's my prayer for us, is that God would remember us for good and for what we've done for his people. So, Thank you so much for having me this morning.